You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science. Everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode is going to blow your top. Unless you're a shield volcano, but we'll get to that in a moment. This is just a quick reminder that Big Picture Science needs your support. And we're not asking for much. If you can spare just a couple of bucks each month, you'll help keep Big Picture Science in production. And you can get a little something in return by donating through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience, sign up, and you'll help us out. It's quick and it's easy, and there are various rewards to choose from. For instance, if you donate five bucks a month, you'll get access to exclusive bonus material. You might hear updates on past stories, extended interviews, or our takes on the latest science happenings. And for $10 a month, you'll get that bonus material and your name dropped like a stone and a lava lake into the credits of our podcast. Head over to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and check it out. Thanks for your support. Thank you. Like many humans, Earth's surface is under pressure. It relieves some of it by blowing off steam too, and ash and lava. Volcanoes didn't blow their tops only during the time of the dinosaurs, you know. There are as many active volcanoes now as 100 million years ago, and at any moment there are dozens erupting somewhere on Earth. In fact, in the middle of putting together this episode, a volcano in the North Atlantic became active for the first time in 6,000 years. Uh, For us, that's a long time. For Mother Earth, that's a brief moment in time. We'll take you from Hawaii to Iceland, from Africa to the Caribbean, to see where Earth is venting hot rock. And a discovery in an ancient Roman city reminds us that eruptions can come on suddenly. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. An erupting volcano reminds us that what you can't see can still make its restless presence known. We've gotten very good at monitoring the seismic activity of volcanoes, so why can't we predict their eruptions? This episode, what we know, what we don't, and who is in harm's way when a volcano loses its cool. It's volcanic mind melt. First stop, the big island of Hawaii, where one of the four shield volcanoes is waking up. Only, it's not the one that might come to mind, Kilauea, the most active volcano on the island in recent decades. It's a sibling volcano, Mauna Loa. The largest volcano on the planet, covering more than half the big island of Hawaii, Mauna Loa is stirring from slumber after almost 40 years of quiescence. So what does it look like when a giant wakes up from a nap? It's probably not so much what you see with a volcano like Mauna Loa, it's what you almost hear. We don't know when Mauna Loa will erupt. Geologist Christopher Jackson describes what scientists monitor and what triggers a rise in their alert level from normal to advisory. So one of the first bits of evidence that you'll have that the volcano is becoming restless again will be in the seismicity. So that is the small earthquakes that are generated by the migration of magma within the volcano itself. And so you'll instrument the volcano to almost hear those earthquakes and that will be your first signal that something is going on. The picture you probably have in your head is of the lava racing out and that would be the first time you're aware that there's something about to happen. It is clear that there are a number of other more subtle signals that a volcano is 
potentially going to erupt. Mm -hmm. And in this case, indeed, the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory has registered hundreds of small earthquakes. To what degree are earthquakes tightly coupled with eruptions? When When they occur around a volcano, does it always mean the eruption is coming? I think one way of looking at it is probably every eruption is preceded by earthquakes, but not every set of earthquakes has an eruption afterwards. So there are a lot of false positives, a lot of false starts. So magma could be migrating around inside the volcano and triggering earthquakes, but there's not enough pressure within the magma itself to cause it to erupt out and and cause a lava flow. But on the flip side, if a lava flow does occur and a volcano has erupted, then it's likely that the ascent of the magma will have deformed rocks within the volcano and caused those small earthquakes. Give us a picture of how it is that magma moving around triggers earthquakes. I mean, the scale and the power of that movement within the earth is hard to imagine with our with our feet on terra firma above it. Yeah, so the you know the 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 rocks inside the volcano are all kind of what we call stressed, right? So they're all kind of very very pressurized and so when magma yeah, we can all relate to that all relate to that these days <laughs> we can all relate to being under under a, a burden and stressed <laughs> yeah so when the magma is forcing its way through there those rocks will fracture and slip and it's that fracturing and slippage of those rocks against one another that causes those earthquakes what does a lava eruption look like on mauna loa and and who is in harm's way so um, a lava eruption in Mauna Loa, there's the you know there's a potentially two different types of eruption. One is a summit eruption where it comes out of the main caldera, so that's the main depression at the top of the volcano, and then we can also have eruptions coming out of the sides of the volcano in what we call flank eruptions. So they happen on the the lower slopes. So it's people who are living their day to day lives around the volcano, whose lives and property are at risk and and infrastructure as well the things like roads and power lines which keep those people connected they're also at risk as well so the risks are many and the risks are varied as a function of the behavior of the volcano it sounds like an eruption of Mauna Loa is not imminent but other volcanoes are not waiting for Hawaii to put on a show we travel to another island situated close to the Arctic Circle in the North Atlantic. Where, like Hawaii, deep rumbling suggested that another volcano was awakening. Starting on uh, late February, we had over 50,000 earthquakes, with the largest earthquakes up to about 5.8. Only this volcano followed up with action. While making this episode, Iceland reminded everyone of the powerful geologic forces that created it. Following weeks of earthquakes, the Fara Dalsviak volcano came to life after being dormant for 6,000 years. It's one of many volcanoes located on the Reykjanes Peninsula, an area of Iceland that hasn't had an eruption in 800 years. But elsewhere in Iceland, as many as 30 volcanoes are active. Oh, if you live in Iceland, you, you, you have to accept the fact that you live on a volcano. Hi, I'm Thor Thordarsson. I'm a professor in volcanology and petrology at the Faculty of Earth Sciences at the University of Iceland. The volcano that has just erupted, Fagradalsfjak, is about 15 miles southwest of Reykjavik. But its slow ooze of lava doesn't threaten residents. Like Hawaii's Mauna Loa, Fagradalsfjak is a shield volcano. Shield volcanoes don't pop their tops in dramatic explosions, but they are distinguished by their gradual sloping profiles, resembling a shield, and the kind of lava that flows from them. The magma that is erupted at these volcanoes is what we call mafic or basaltic. Uh, In simple terms, it means that it's hot and fluid. All magmas have gases in them, just like most of our soda drinks have some carbon dioxide in them. And uh, if you pop a soda bottle after you shake in it, you get an eruption. And if it's a really fluid liquid like salt, like we have in Hawaii and also in Iceland, those bubbles can expand easily, they can rise easily, and they can escape without building up a large pressure and creating a big explosion. So shield volcanoes are gentler beasts. But in volcanoes where the magma is sticky, viscous, and slower moving... Those bubbles that are formed... They're having a hard time both growing and moving, but you're still pumping gas in them, into them. So you're building up the pressure inside them. And when the pressure inside them exceeds the strength of the melt around them or the envelope, you get a big 
thing. So, Thor, the fact that this wasn't an explosion at Fagradalsviak actually makes this volcano safe to approach, right? I mean, there are videos on the web of people cooking hot dogs above the hot rocks. Does it present any of the dangers that some recent eruptions in Iceland have posed? Is it putting anything into the atmosphere we need to worry about? Sure it is. And I don't recommend cooking hot dogs on, on, on hot lava flows. Even though this is a, a fairly weak eruption, it does possess some dangers. There's a fair amount of gas that is emitted into the atmosphere, particularly SO2, but also carbon dioxide coming out as well, and most likely some carbon monoxide. And those are toxic things. And uh, if you happen to end up in a pool of these gases, that can have severe consequences. So getting too close is probably not a good idea. But people still can get fairly close and enjoy the view from a safe distance, but still feel the heat from the, from the lava and then the eruption. But you said you shouldn't cook your hot dogs on it. Uh, why is it? Do they taste like rotten eggs? No, it's not so much about the taste. You can put, you know, the food in aluminum foil. But where people are doing this, they're doing this of what we call active flow front. The lava is still moving. And lava is a kind of peculiar uh, fluid because it does not freeze at one temperature. It freezes over a fairly you know, large temperature interval of 100 to 150 degrees. And that means that if you look at a front, the outermost skin has cooled down, it looks dark, and you think it's all fine and solid. But a few centimeters inside is a liquid lava, which is pushing onto this outer skin, which is you know brittle, solid and brittle on the outside, but viscous and, and uh, quite strong on the inside, but it can break. And when it breaks, the liquid lava inside can burst out fairly rapidly, and you can have what we call breakouts, and those breakouts can move on occasion faster than we can run. The temperature of the lava is 1,200 degrees centigrade. And if you happen to be in its path, well, we don't really have to say anything more, do we? It sounds like you better have asbestos footwear. Okay, so you did have advance warning. If I'm just a, a resident of Iceland, what happens? Do I get texts on my cell phone? Is there Are there sirens blaring all day long? I mean, you know, what, what is the heads up I get? Well, in, in Iceland, we have a, quite a sophisticated surveillance system, which is primarily detecting earthquakes, but also deformation. So when magma is injected into the crust, it actually makes space by pushing other things out of the way, and it deforms the crust and the surface. Now, all of that is actually streamed more or less live by the Icelandic Met Office, which is the authority for surveillance. And uh, we use the media, we use, of course, phones. If there is an immediate danger for a particular area, then everyone will get a text message in their phones. I think that many people know that Iceland is situated right on the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And this is where new oceanic crust is being formed. So hot magma bubbles up with some going toward the east, towards Europe and Africa, and some going west in the direction of the Americas to add to the West Atlantic. So what does this very special location mean for Iceland? Well, Iceland is what we call a hotspot. And it's a hotspot because there's an unusual amount of volcanism in Iceland. The reason for that is that we have a deep-seated mantle plume which is rising up right underneath Iceland, and as it approaches the surface, it actually hits right underneath the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, and it lifts the Mid-Atlantic Ridge up about 4,000 meters, and that's what created Iceland. That's why Iceland is a plateau standing well above the surrounding seafloor. Okay, so it's, it's a hot spot in the same way that Hawaii is a hot spot, but you know, because of the motion of the oceanic plate there, Hawaii keeps moving the islands that are formed you know, farther and farther west. That's not happening with Iceland, it just stays there. Yes, that is true. And the, the Icelandic you know, hotspot is slightly different from Hawaii. In Hawaii, you just have a mantle plume which has punched a hole through the plate and the plate moves over it. And the, and the mantle plume keeps poking that hole up through the plate to form the, the, the islands. In Iceland, you have the, the, the ridge on top, 
So, and the ridge moves things in both directions. So it helps Iceland grow and the mountain plume keeps Iceland up. And one of the reasons why this sort of a dual exists is because the spreading and the movement of the plates in the Atlantic is much, much slower than it is in the Pacific. Well, given all that tectonic activity, what's the appeal of Iceland to you? The dramatic landscape? I mean, I assume you don't lie awake at night worried about the potential danger beneath your house. Being born here, you, you know, you, you, you take these things with a stride, really. I mean, it's, and there's not much you can do about it, and you learn to live with them. It's like anything. In California, you have to learn to live with big earthquakes. And, uh, and uh, up in the Cascades, you got big volcanoes. In Hawaii, you live on a volcano if you live on the big island of Hawaii. I mean, I, for seven years, I lived in Western Australia, uh, which is volcanically and tectonically a very safe place, but it does have its own challenges. It, it's wherever you go, you have to learn to live with the, the, you know, the environment that is around you. One of the beauties of Iceland, it's got so, in, you know, spectacular contrasts. And you literally have those cases where you see the fire playing with the ice. And uh, there are not that many places left on this planet where you have untouched nature, you know, where man has not put his mark on, on, on things. And we still have places like that in Iceland. And I really value that. I think that is absolutely some of the most fantastic things one can experience. Well, Fourth Artisan, I guess you should stock your uh, fridge with uh, hot dogs just in case you change your mind and decide to cook a few, you know, as museum displays. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and I thank you. Well, thank you so much, and have a good day. Thor Thordarsson is a professor of volcanology and petrology at the University of Iceland. Well, Molly, you know, I've got to really admire the residents of Iceland for cooking their their lunch over all this uh, mantle heat, (laughs) hot dogs over the lava. Yes, although he did advise against doing that because uh, volcanoes can change their behavior kind of suddenly. And maybe hot dogs aren't the most salubrious choice, especially when poisonous gases are involved. Well, it's true that the volcanoes in Iceland, as well as the ones in Hawaii, are very carefully monitored, and consequently, you know, the local residents don't have to worry too much because they will get adequate warning of any danger. But that's not always the case. When Mount Vesuvius erupted in 79 AD, it created an instant museum formerly known as the Roman city of Pompeii. What that city and the field of historical volcanology reveal about life in the shadow of a volcano next. Things are heating up. It's volcanic mind melt on Big Picture Science. So, Seth, are you ready to get some hot dogs at the Volcanic Snack Bar? I like mine extra crispy with a little bit of sulfur, but hold the ash. Well, we will continue our Volcanic World Tour in a moment, but we want to appeal to your generosity one more time and ask you to join us on Patreon. Folks who subscribe at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience not only keep this show in production, but also get early access to ad-free versions of each episode. And the more you give, the more you get in return. From exclusive bonus material to hearing your name in the credits of our podcast or even being able to ask Seth a question. You're guaranteed a somewhat coherent response, but only somewhat. And you may even kick off a discussion that leads to a new episode. Just go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience to sign up. Much like this ad, it's quick, it's easy, and we really appreciate your support. Thanks a lot. Imagine going into your attic to pull out a family painting that has been tucked away for decades. Sure, it's a little dusty, but absent exposure to humidity or sunlight, no worse for wear. Yes, your oil portrait of Uncle Chester is almost as vivid as it was when the paint dried 50 years ago. 
But now imagine you're uncovering paintings that haven't seen the light of day for 2,000 years. Archaeologists in Pompeii have recently unearthed a colorfully muraled snack bar. Yes, an ancient snack bar or thermopolium. Thermo means heat, so presumably some of these ancient delectables would have been served warm. Now, this pristine artifact delighted the scientists, who then immediately began fretting about how to preserve it. This story reminds us how quickly the explosion of Mount Vesuvius in 79 AD stopped life in its tracks, but also that, paradoxically, its ash and other pyroclasts provided immediate historic preservation. But what Vesuvius gives, it also takes away. The unique chemistry that preserved the thermopolium murals is now playing a role in their destruction. The work of research teams at the dig, including analytic chemists, conservators, and archaeologists, give us a sense of the challenges of preserving the past. Our reporter, archaeologist Emma Bentley, joins us to discuss the story. Hi there, Emma. Tell us about this excavated thermopolium, this Roman snack bar. Well, hey, Molly. Yes, this beautifully decorated thermopolium has a zigzag shaped counter about 20 feet long by three feet high with painted fresco panels all along the front and cooking and storage areas behind. And this is the exciting part. Set into the countertop are nine large terracotta jars called dolia. Inside were found remains of pig, goat, fish and duck bones, as well as snail shells. An amazing artifact. Yes, it really was a surprise to all, I think, and for a couple of reasons. Food residues are rare and it's really special to get frescoes like this in such excellent condition and decorated with animals matching what's discovered in the pots. Archaeologist Alia Wallace, whose research is on visitor behavior at Pompeii, summed up the reaction of all the scientists at the excavation. I mean, it's amazing. It's absolutely such a stunning piece. And as somebody who's actually been able to excavate and work in Pompeii, if I had ever been able to excavate something like that, I would just be like, oh, like I never found anything that cool. Well, any idea who would have eaten at the snack bar? Well, the Thermopolia are for the working class, the normal people, and any tradesmen or merchants passing through this port town. You can just imagine pulling up a stall, tucking into a bowl of duck and snail stew, and watching the bustle and activity. Because it wouldn't have ever been quiet. It would have been super loud and stinky and people everywhere. Well, the colorful murals are of particular interest to archaeologists. Describe them for us, Emma. The main background is this warm mustard yellow pigment and on one panel are painted a plump rooster and two sad grey ducks with their webbed feet in the air all ready for the pot. But there's also a stormy blue seascape where two dolphins play alongside a sea nymph on a seahorse and a painting of wine jars in front of which the excavators found the real things all lined up and ready to pour. But my favourite painting is the hungry dog on a leash waiting for you to drop a morsel for him. What accounts for the pristine condition of the frescoes? Well, this is because the pyroclastic material ejected by Vesuvius, all those ashes, the gases, the small pebbles, smothered the city and insulated it. Analytical chemistry PhD student Silvia Perez-Diez at the University of the Basque Country in Spain says that this preserved the yellow pigment. Also a very special thing about the thermopolium is that the yellow pigment is very well preserved. And that's because it was not exposed to very, very high temperature. The unique properties of the pyroclastic materials protected the thermopolium frescoes in other ways. Dr. Maita Magregi is an analytical chemist also at the University of the Basque Country. And those kind of solid materials form this like a concrete layer, very solid layer that cover all the city and this protect the city against the atmosphere. Which means our thermopolium was shielded from humidity and rainwater. But now here comes the flip side of the Roman coin, Molly. The excitement at finding such beautiful, pristine murals comes along with a classic archaeologist's reaction upon excavating them. I am immediately hesitant about the exposure to the elements. That includes the hot sun, the sea air, and also living and breathing tourists. When you're getting big groups of people, you're getting this condensation from everybody breathing in the same area. People's backpacks rubbing against things. But doesn't everything fade in the sunlight and sea air in Pompeii? Well, that's true, Molly. But the particular chemistry within the pyroclastic materials speeds this up. This is what happened. 
Whilst Pompeii was buried, groundwater seeped into the pyroclast, dissolving chemical salts that formed with the fluorine and chlorine gases released during the eruption. The water splits the salts into constituent ions. And water, being water, moved all through the porous frescoes and stone walls, taking these dissolved ions with it. Then, when the frescoes are excavated, another chemical reaction occurs. When these murals are open to the atmosphere, you have the influence of water coming from rainwater, humidity, you have a changes in the temperature. So all these variables promote the crystallization of those ions present in the porous material. So now you have hard salt crystals on the surface of the paintings, but also on the surface of the walls behind the plasterwork of the frescoes. And this is a problem. They cause a mechanical damage because they are hidden. So you don't see them, but then they grow, they grow, and then the, the pictorial layer falls. The murals literally fall off the wall. This deterioration of frescoes is a major issue at Pompeii. But, but surely they've been trying to protect the frescoes of Pompeii for centuries. They have, but now they have a tool that can help. Dr. Magaregi's team is using portable laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy to identify those fluorine ions behind the frescoes to pinpoint the salts causing the most damage. This will help develop more effective ways of preserving the frescoes in situ. So what's happening is that the pyroclastic materials from Vesuvius that protected these beautiful 2,000-year-old murals is now having a role in hastening their destruction. It makes you wonder maybe they weren't meant to be excavated. Well, this is the classic tension between preservation and presentation, and one that archaeologists struggle with, especially at World Heritage sites like Pompeii, with up to 20,000 visitors a day. So that's why they removed some fresco paintings to preserve in the, in the museum. So, okay, this is another option. But anyway, we need also to observe the objects in the field, so it's quite difficult to decide. Yes, because seeing these frescoes in situ, showing what normal people ate and evoking the sights and smells of food being cooked gives you the whole picture of life 2,000 years ago. You know, when you're looking up the site and you see Vesuvius in the background, that is a huge thing for people because it actually brings it in. They're like, I didn't realize it was so close. Or some people are like, I didn't realize it was so far. Like. <laughs> It's a great experience for people to keep doing and keep having because every generation is going to get something different from it. Well, Emma, I hope one day we can walk around the ruins of Pompeii together. Thank you. Well, learning about this has made me very hungry for Pompeian snail stew. Thank you, Molly. Thanks to archaeologist and science reporter Emma Bentley. Well, it was certainly interesting to hear about something, you know, that really strikes a resonant chord with me, a snack bar in an ancient Roman city. Now, you've been to Pompeii, haven't you, Seth? Yes, I have been there a couple of times. It's, uh, it's big, so you really don't get tired of it. And besides, if you space your visits over a couple of years, there'll be more to see the second time. So it's worth going back. What you're seeing is a, a city that obviously has been abandoned after 2,000 years. And what's not so obvious, unless you look at the mummified bodies, is the people that died there. We, you know, you tend to forget about it because it's 2,000 years ago, but a lot of people did die. It was described by Pliny the Younger. He was an historian, and he, he talked about, you know, what was happening over in Pompeii because he knew. And, uh, you know, most people did get out, but not all of them, not all of them. And it, it just shows you how vulnerable you are to things like volcanoes because they can turn on you very quickly. I mean, these people didn't know about any advanced warning. Is there a modern city of Pompeii now, and how close is it to the ancient city? Well, I mean, you know, it's the Naples Bay area, so it's not too far from Naples. The train ride from downtown Naples to Pompeii is only like 40 minutes, but there are houses all along the way. I mean, I mean this is a very densely populated area around the Bay of Naples, 
Right. And, uh, you know, you, you can see the houses outside the Pompeii area, you know, the museum kind of area. You can see them edging their way up to the flanks of uh, Mount Vesuvius. They're all over the place. I mean, an aerial view would show you that there are people everywhere, and they're apparently not terribly concerned about the possible danger, figuring that the scientists can tell them when they have to leave. In contrast to the shield volcanoes in Iceland and Hawaii, Mount Vesuvius, which is still active by the way, is one of many cone-shaped explosive stratovolcanoes. Attention grabbers for sure, and one is calling attention to itself now. Residents of the Caribbean island of St. Vincent have been told to prepare for the first explosion in 40 years of their stratovolcano La Soufriere. It's begun to give off steam. And it's a reminder that people continue to live near explosive volcanoes, where danger and uncertainty can be found in what is often stunningly beautiful terrain. This interests volcanologist Jasmine Scarlett, who has looked at past eruptions at La Soufriere. Her field of study is the historical and social importance of volcanoes. Volcanoes are really fickle things. It depends on the volcanoes. So we say that each volcano has its own personality. So some volcanoes, they do give us plenty of warning. Some volcanoes do not give us any warning at all. So, for example, uh, Mount Unsen in Japan, there was an eruption that unfortunately killed um, hikers because scientists only got 25 seconds of warning. And so what, what can you do in 25 seconds if you're on top of the mountain? There's hardly any. But then you get, for example, the volcano I researched, La Soufriere, in St. Vincent and the Grenadines. You can get up to a year's warning. I see. Okay. They, they have their own personalities. <laughs> I, you know, but the idea, I mean, the fact that people live near volcanoes, I mean, you know, I've been to the Bay of Naples many times, and mm-hmm. you, know, you just see these, this, all these houses running up the side of uh, Mount Vesuvius there. Why do people live so close to the volcanoes? Is it just that, you know, land values are lower there and they can afford to? Um, so I don't know about land values, but it's definitely the land is so bountiful and the main reason is because of the fertile soil and that's universal throughout the world that's usually one of the main reasons why but other reasons can be like just a sense of place so that that cultural connection to that place they feel confident that they know what to do if something happened because they've experienced it before but of course that depends on volcano because Vesuvius for example last erupted in World War Two, and that's quite a long time ago now for people that live around the Bay of Naples so there are a variety of reasons, but it's usually mainly the benefits outweigh the costs. You said that the soil conditions on the flanks of a volcano are particularly productive. Mm-hmm. And why is that? What, what, what's going on there to make the soil any better? It sounds to me just maybe filled with hot rock that's solidified. Uh, well, once these hot rocks are kind of like solidified and cooled down, uh, they actually contain a lot of minerals uh, that they bring up from with, within the earth. So there's lots of like aluminium, magnesium, nitrogen, carbon, um, but that's usually why it's so productive because they're just so many rich properties um, of all the minerals brought up from within the earth. Jasmine, do you have uh, a kind of a rough number for how many volcanoes are active uh, around the earth in total? Okay, so in terms of active, we have a weird definition. So in geology and volcanology, we define a volcano as active is has erupted once in the last 10,000 years. <laughs> um, compared to obviously people who are not aware of that they think that it's erupting that actually it's active so that's definitely a confusion between people who study geology and not but in terms of erupting right now there's usually always around about 40 to 50 volcanoes um, on a given week or month but in terms of active there is around about 1,500 volcanoes that are active around the world Okay, so there are 1,500 volcanoes <laughs> where, where it could erupt tomorrow. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, so basically they're, they're not, and because they've erupted at least once in the last 10,000 years, there may be a potential they can erupt again. What, well, what's the riskiest volcano to live near these days? I mean, in your estimation. Um, again, it depends on the volcano, but the highest risk are volcanoes that can produce what we call um, pyroclastic density currents. Um, Their old term is pyroclastic flows. And these are basically gravity-driven 
basically hot ash flows and these contain hot gases, hot volcanic material and anything else they can pick up. And what makes them really dangerous is that they could travel up to like 300 miles per hour. They can channelize down river valleys. They can blanket flanks of volcano. They can travel uphill and surmount topography. And they can also flow over water. And I found in my research, they can also flow backwards as well. And they're very hard to outrun. And they were the main reason why we had Pompeii and Herculaneum. They were the ones that actually um, mummified all the um, residents that stayed in Pompeii when the eruption was happening in 1790, 79 AD. <laughs> Your focus these days is on the historical impact of volcanic eruptions in St. Vincent and the Grenadines in the West Indies, right? Mm-hmm. And those are prob- that's probably a volcano that's not as well known as Etna or Vesuvius or even Mount St. Helens. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about La Soufrière yes. on St. Vincent? Yes, so La Soufrière is the only active volcano on St. Vincent, but St. Vincent has a whole chain of extinct volcanoes. And I like to describe it as a big volcano on a small island because this island is tiny. You can get around it in like five hours. It's, it's a tiny island. And it's one of those places where everyone knows everybody <laughs> as well. And this volcano... It's one of the most active in the Caribbean. It's, it's a special volcano in terms of you don't actually know what's going to happen next of it. So for those who don't know, it's actually erupting right now. But the difference between the eruption that's happening right now is it's an effusive eruption. So effusive eruption is basically, it's gently erupting lava. What we know is with La Soufrière, it always does an effusive eruption before it does an explosive one. So that's why the volcanologists who do research La Sofrey are paying close attention to this eruption. Um, because we don't know exactly when it might explode, but usually this is an indication that there's magma filling into the system that might eventually lead to an explosive eruption. And explosive eruptions are dangerous because they produce these pyroclastic flows. They also produce what we call lahars, which are basically volcanic mud flows. Uh, what's dangerous about these mud flows is they can happen before, during and after an eruption. And that's one thing people do tell us. It's like, oh, when is it going to happen? And so we are still forecasting science. We don't really know yet. Well, finally, Jasmine, I mean, volcanoes are certainly attractive in the sense that they're dramatic, they're dangerous. Can I ask, you know, how did you get interested in volcanoes? Yeah, I got interested in a mixture of... During school, I was just really fascinated by natural hazards. And of course, volcanoes fell into one of those. But also, it was a personal connection. So my family come from St. Vincent and the Grandines. And they have stories of the last eruptions, 1902 and 1979. And I was just amazed. I was like, this is amazing. Like, I, I want to know more. But yeah, so it's actually La Soufrière that got me interested. And... If you ask any volcanologist, they will say there was a volcano or a volcanic eruption that got them inspired to be a volcanologist. That's the upside of volcanoes, I guess. <laughs> you stimulate people to study them. Jasmine Scarlett, thank you so much for speaking with us. No, oh, thank you for having me. Jasmine Scarlett is a historical and social volcanologist living in the UK. You know, I was struck that she said the riskiest volcanoes to live by are those that form pyroclastic flows. And as we've heard, those were the flows that buried ancient Pompeii. And I was also struck by the fact that those flows can actually travel uphill, which says they have a lot of compression strength. Well, from the Caribbean, we go to Africa and meet another stratovolcano and a scientist who climbed into it, a personal journey toward the center of the Earth, next. Yeah, Niragonga is an incredibly beautiful volcano, and often things which are very dangerous are beautiful and alluring and capture the imagination, and, and this certainly does that. Bringing the world's volcanoes together, it's Volcanic Mind Melt on Big Picture Science.
our final stop on our world tour of active volcanoes takes us to a stratovolcano in Africa. Yes, and Mount Nirigongo is just north of the city of Goma in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Nirigongo is showing signs of activity, notably the growing lake of lava at the top of the cinder cone. Now, the lava doesn't have to overflow the top of the cone to cause damage. It can burst through the side and race downhill. Prior to a 2002 eruption, two lone seismological stations on Mount Nirigongo were able to give a few days advance warning. But in the war-torn country, funding for detailed monitoring is tight, and the lack of infrastructure prevented the evacuation of the city of Goma. That lava was quite runny, so it moved quite quickly across the land down into the city. So it actually went through the city of Goma, like down you know, the main street, and it cut the city almost in half. It, it passed over some of the runway. The dramatic eruption destroyed 15% of the town. Now Nirigongo is getting ready to erupt again in an area where... Unlike in Iceland and Hawaii, monitoring is poorly funded and warning systems are unreliable. Currently, several size monitors there are out of action due to vandalism, theft, and lightning damage, and civil unrest makes repairs dangerous. So when exactly will this African volcano erupt? Well, scientists think it could be in the next few years, but geology doesn't work on a schedule. However, geologist Christopher Jackson at the University of Manchester does work on a schedule, and he hopes that it will allow for further study of the volcano to help identify the early warning signs that can improve monitoring. Now, Nirigongo is one of the most dangerous volcanoes on the planet. So, naturally, Dr. Jackson did what volcano researchers are compelled to do. He went inside and lowered himself by rope, what the British call abseiling. So he could dangle over the area where new crust is being created. It's a volcano which is in something called the East African Rift. And this is a part of the earth where the, the plate, the, the continental plate is being stretched. So there's something we call rifting happening. And as a function of that rifting, magma is able to ascend up into the Earth's crust and be expelled in the form of the volcano. So there's a whole chain of volcanoes going all the way northwards to the Gulf of Aden and to the borders of the Red Sea. And... It's amazing in that it's just one of about 10 really, really big volcanoes, but it's one of literally hundreds, if not thousands, of much smaller volcanic vents. So, you know, we see the big, big volcanoes that capture the imagination that stick out the ground, but there's also lots of smaller volcanic vents and lots of other ways in which magma and, and fluids and gases are, are vented out into the, into the atmosphere. I've seen photos of Nirigongo. Of course, you've seen it close up. Um, it's quite beautiful. Yeah, Nirigongo is an incredibly beautiful volcano, and often things which are very dangerous are beautiful and alluring and capture the imagination. And, and this is certainly this certainly does that. So it has this perfect kind of triangular shape. You know, the sort of shape in your that you'd have in your mind when you think of a volcano, or that you'd ask a small you know small child would draw a volcano that looks like Nirigongo. Um, and it's just behind the city of Goma, just over a million people live there. So it is really casting a shadow over, over this, this highly populated area. And at the top of Nirigonga, then obviously there's the big caldera, the big hole at the top, which contains the, the lava lake. And that lava lake filling that crater, it suggests that eruption is years off, is that right? Well, I think, it's, I think it's more complicated than that. I think the, the lava lake in Nirigongo actually oscillates quite a lot. It goes up and down quite a lot. And it's like a lot of these um, signatures of volcanoes erupting or the precursors to volcanoes erupting is that just because the lava lake is filling doesn't necessarily mean that the, the volcano is going to erupt. And in fact, the converse, if the lava lake drains, that might mean that lava has left the summit of the volcano has gone down into somewhere lower in the volcano, maybe towards the flank and is pressurizing an area there, which then could lead to a flank eruption like there was in 2002. So it's, it's not simply a case of monitoring the lava lake height, let's say, but it's also a case of monitoring things like the gases that are coming out of the Neurogongan volcanoes like that, or, or trying to understand the seismicity, so the pattern of earthquakes within it. And I think this speaks to a lot of volcano kind of forecasting or eruption forecasting it's it's the confluence of all of those bits of evidence which are probably more reliable overall than relying on one piece of evidence alone
So I, I want to move on to your adventures inside a volcano, but one question before that, an overview. Can you give us an overview of the kinds of things that scientists monitor in volcanoes to try to forecast when they might erupt? We now understand that volcanoes are quite different. A lot of different things are happening, but what's just sort of a compendium of the sorts of things that they monitor? So one thing you monitor at a volcano, and you could monitor this continuously, is the gases that are coming out of fumaroles or vents around the volcano. So you might be measuring things like carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide, because um, changes in the sulfur dioxide and carbon dioxide might be telling you about whether or not the magma reservoir in the volcano or beneath it is being replenished with new magma, and that could elevate the pressure within the magma reservoir and, and therefore within the volcano. So the gases are really important part of that story. You may also be monitoring the shape of the volcano. So you can do that by putting on the sides of the volcano these things called tilt meters. So they just tell you whether the land is tilting or you could have something on a satellite that's orbiting the Earth. So um, something we call uh, geodetic data. So you're looking at the, the, the movement of the land surface. And in that way, what you're looking for is maybe where the volcano is deforming. So if magma is ascending into one particular part of the volcano, you may actually see that that side of the volcano deforms and bulges out. And that, you know, the bulging of that side of the volcano in concert with increased seismicity in that location, in concert with an increase in carbon dioxide and sulfur dioxide fluxes from vents there, may all be pointing you towards a, an imminent eruption. Okay, so we have gases earthquakes, the changing, uh, the mor morphology of yeah. the uh, volcano, anything else? Uh, what else would you look for? I think when lava starts coming out the top, you probably know <laughs> okay. that it's about to erupt, but maybe it's, it's, it's really, you know, there's things like, there were some things in, in Niragongo we looked at, which was infrasound. So this was using non-audible to human um, sound to essentially look at, as I understand it, how the air pressure is changing within the volcano caldera. So you've got this air mass within the, the depression at the top of the volcano. And as the lava lake is, is, is going up and down, it's obviously moving the, the air mass up and down like a trombone almost. You know, it's moving like a, a, a musical instrument. And um, by using some geophysical techniques of infrastructure, you can actually hear that change. So that's another kind of almost burgeoning or arising technology, which I had never heard about before I went to Niragongo. And then, um, you know, scientists from the US showed, showed us this technique and how they were trying to assess its utility in, in, in volcano monitoring. They're, they're volcano whisperers. They are, yeah. I, I think he described it like a, a trombone or something. He said that every, I think he said, every volcano has a voice. And that voice, if you think about it, is related to the shape and size of the caldera at the top of the volcano, but also the nature of the changes in that air mass as a function of maybe the lava lake. Well, you've given us some tools for forecasting. Now, I know with Mount Niragongo, I think the advice is don't go near it. But that's not that's the advice that you ignored because you actually did go near it. And not only that, you went into it. How did you do that, Chris? How did you enter this volcano? So you, you enter a volcano firstly by climbing it because you have to go a long way up, about two kilometres vertical ascent up to the, um, the edge of the caldera, so the lip of the, of the crater. And then to get into the volcano, because it's a few hundred metres down, we did a, an abseil of about 30 odd pitches. So it was a long, long way to abseil down into the volcano. But at that point, you were at the base of um, one of the terraces within the volcano, um, which we call Tears. And then, you know, the lava lake is safely one tier below where we were uh, camping. <laughs> was it hot? No, it was freezing cold. I mean, it's like minus a couple of degrees on the lip of the volcano. You get down into the volcano, surround freezing. The lava lake is 800 degrees or the lava is 800 degrees Celsius. But, you know, you could probably stand 100 meters away from that lava lake and, and get a, you know, warm glow off it. But it's, but it's like, I think it's... In your mind, you think the whole crater is going to be hot because there is this very big pot of bubbling lava, but it's not. It's, ama it's amazingly cold and the heat dissipation is quite rapid away from there. So it was your own personal journey to the center of the earth. <laughs> um, of course, in, in, in that story, they learned a lot <laughs> about volcanoes. What did you learn about Mount Niragongo by going into it? We learned that there are. It, we we learned that we don't know that much about how it behaves because it's hard to monitor this volcano and there's not a lot of funding to do so. 
Um, so, you know, the lava lake itself was very dynamic. It was going up and down. The lava lake temperature changed in a surprisingly variable way. It also had this infrasound signature that, you know, you could actually see changes in the lava lake and relatively modest change in the lava lake as a function of the, the changes in the infrasound signal. So there's lots and lots of things arising from studies of Niragonga and, and there needs to be more effort put into that because of the hazard it poses to a very large population centre. Well, finally, Chris, then, if you could invent a geologic tool that would help you to monitor volcanoes, you could do anything you wanted, what would that be? What would you like to learn? Oh, my goodness. That is a very good question. You can make up a tool, by the way. It doesn't have to exist. I'm trying to think, I mean, to to make up the tool. Yeah, I'll just dig away the side of it so I could see into it, right? (laughs) I think that's what I would do. So your tool there is a shovel, basically. (laughs) It's a shovel. I'm a very low low tech sort of guy, and I would just dig a hole in the side. I think anything that can tell us, you know, give us the most, you know, give us the most certainty that the volcano is going to erupt in the style of eruption. So... You know, even digging a hole in the side of it probably won't tell you that, but it will it'll tell you something about the system. Well, Christopher Jackson, what a pleasure to talk to you about volcanoes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Christopher Jackson is a geologist and chair of Sustainable Geosciences at the University of Manchester. Well, Seth, we asked a few questions at the top of this show. What do we know about volcanoes? What don't we know? And who is in harm's way? And also, can we improve the prediction of when the next one's going to hit? The answer to some of those questions is there's a lot we don't know about volcanoes still. Uh, We do know that there are a couple different kinds, the shield volcano and the explosive stratovolcano. Yeah, I think the real problem is that geology is, frankly, complicated. Because whether a volcano is going to blow or not depends on all sorts of things. You know, what is the magma made of, which rock and so forth? What are the gas pressures? What is the topology of those underground caverns where the magma is. It's really a tough problem. As for who is in harm's way, well, we heard that anyone living near a volcano is potentially endangered, but the actual harm depends on the quality of the monitoring system and the early warning system and the availability of transport infrastructure. Well, we could not do the show without the cool heads of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin, our resident geologist. Also this week, thanks to the reporting skills of Emma Bentley. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates the emergence of intelligence. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon. Special thanks to a couple of our Patreon Velociraptors, Michael Peterson and Jamie M. And further thanks to Patreon Dolphin 1x4x9. Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, that is bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of Big Picture Science. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Volcanic Mind Melt. 